when Pastor, let's see, am I on here? When Pastor Eric told me he was going to be going through the book of uh, Genesis, there were a couple of things that I was really looking forward to, and one of them was Genesis 6, because I was thinking into myself, I wonder how he's going to approach this passage. Well, when he told me that he was leaving and I got Genesis 6, I just sort of thought to myself, well, I guess it serves me right, and I guess I have to dance with who I brung. So uh, that's where we are this morning. We are, uh, Pastor Eric finished up in Genesis 4 last week. You'll notice that we're missing, we're over, stepping over Genesis 5, which is a, a number of genealogies. Not that they are unimportant. They definitely have a, a, a place in the greater scheme of the book of Genesis. But um, as, my, uh, as my boss and as my uh, senior pastor, Pastor Eric, said, Keith, you get Genesis 6, 1 through 8. So that's where we are this, evening, this afternoon. Let's pray before we start. Father, thank you for your word that speaks to us on various levels. This passage, uh, as difficult as it is, uh, has something to say to us. It says something about uh, who you are and how you deal with um, your creation. I would invite your presence here this morning that you, Father, would uh, illuminate us as we look into your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I've broken the passage up basically into two sections. The first is uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and it's on the screen. It's also in your um, uh, handout. So... When men begin to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not contend with men forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. This is, without a doubt, one of the most difficult passages in the entire scripture to answer the question, who in the world are the sons of God? It's pretty obvious who the daughters of men are. They're just the normal daughters that are born um, to, the, uh, to the prodigy, to the lineage, into the lineage of Seth and Adam. But who in the world are these sons of God? And throughout the the history of the church, there have been basically three major um, ways to interpret what this phrase means. The first one is that they are angels. And up until the second century uh, BC or second century AD, this was the prominent interpretation, that the sons of God refer to an angelic being that looked down from wherever they were um, and saw the beautiful daughters of men and came down and had intercourse with them, and they produced children. Quite a fantastic story, if you ask me. But there were some reasons for it. This, this interpretation wasn't just pulled out of thin air. We find the phrase, sons of God, that exact phrase, uh, found, is found three times in the scriptures. And it's all in the book of Job. And it is clear, it's in Job, if, if you want to write this down, it's Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.6. And it is clear from those passages that 
the term sons of God is referring to the angelic host or to those angels that stand before God. doesn't make any, any uh, delineation between angels who were obedient to God or angels who were, um, had fallen, who had rebelled against God. In fact, when it says the sons of God came, or the sons of God uh, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them, it seems to include Satan, the accuser, the uh, the leader of the demonic host and realm to be included under that term, the sons of God. Um, like I said, it was the prominent interpretation through the second century. In fact, um, in the second century, um, prior to Christ's coming, Alexander the Great uh, determined that the Old Testament were to, was going to be translated into Greek uh, so that the Greek speakers of that time could could read the Old Testament. And when the translators of the Septuagint, that's what it means, the 70, because there were 70 translators, when they came to this passage, they actually used the Greek term for angel. It was the angels of God. They didn't use the word sons of God. They used the word angels of God. So it was clear what their interpretation was. The reason they took that interpretation is because of what it says in the book of Job. And also we find throughout the Old Testament, there are times when we see angelic beings take upon themselves human form, right? Uh, In Genesis 8, Abraham uh, entertains guests. He feeds them. He... uh, he interacts with them, and the, the scriptures make it clear that they're angels, but Abraham sees them as men. He interacts. He knows who they are. He knows that they are angelic, but his interaction with him is on the basis is, is that they're men. Uh, Lot's traveling companions, remember when he was uh, going from point A to point B and had to overnight in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, in that town? Lot had a couple of angelic beings that were traveling with him, and they appeared as men to the degree that the wicked men of Sodom wanted those um, companions of Lot to engage in sexual intercourse with them. So they appeared as men. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, Mary goes to the tomb, and and in the Gospel of Luke, she interacts with a man that she recognizes as an angel, but she recognizes him as a man. It's not like uh, there there was this uh, declaration of majesty and power and might. We do see that in the scriptures when when the, the angelic host appears, but not always. And then finally in Luke, um, I'm sorry, in uh, Hebrews 13.2, the writer of Hebrews says, people have entertained angels and weren't aware of it. So you've got two different lines of argument that would declare that you would interpret this phrase, sons of God, as being angelic beings. Number one is that the exact term is found in the Old Testament in the book of Job. The the second line is that we see throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, that there is the interaction between the angelic realm and humanity in terms that they appear to be just um, men. And they always appear as men. They never appear as women. And they never appear with with wings. So just, uh, just so that you know that. But the objection is this. The objection, I mean, doesn't that just sound bizarre? It sounds bizarre, doesn't it? 
But that doesn't mean it's not true. Just because something sounds bizarre doesn't mean it's not true. But there are some objections. In Luke 20, uh, verse 34, Jesus, uh, Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees, or by the, actually by the Sadducees, who say, a, man is, a woman is married to a man, he dies. She marries his brother, he dies. Marries her, his brother, he, he dies. And there is a seven, she has the, best, the worst luck in the world. She has seven husbands. And they ask the question, who Husband, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? That's the question that they ask. The Sadducees believed, did not believe in the resurrection, and they did not believe in um, that existence trans or went on beyond this life. They were just trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus' response is, uh, the people of this age marry and are giving in marriage. Are given in marriage. So just the, um, you know, a very... Uh, poetic way of saying what goes on within marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, meaning the age to come, and in the resurrection from from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. So the objection to seeing sons of God as angels is that, wait a second, it says, Jesus says that angels don't, aren't given in marriage and they don't marry. Therefore, the assumption is, is that they're asexual beings, that it is impossible for them to reproduce, to procreate. So the sons of God cannot have physical intercourse with the daughters of men and produce children. The response would be this, and the response is this, is that the angels in heaven do, in fact, follow that um, God's precept that that's forbidden, that's outside the realm of what you do as an angel. But the fallen angels are not obedient to God. What it says is that they are not given or give or given in marriage, not that they can't. Luke says they don't, but not that they can't. So it's possible. This is a possible interpretation of what it means what the phrase sons of God means. And if that is in fact the case, there would be a material boundary that was crossed. The the spiritual realm invaded the uh, material realm. And that crossing would seem to fit with what's found in Luke or in Jude 6 where it says and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home that they transgressed that boundary. These angels, the ones that are are, are found in Genesis 6 have been kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. That that is the class of angels that are are found in Luke 6. So so does that make sense? The first interpretation up until the second century after the death of Christ was that the sons of God referred to the angelic beings. Bizarre, but not necessarily untrue. The second interpretation of this is that these are rulers and kings. Human rulers are described in Psalm 82 as um, sons of Elohim, sons of God, where it says God takes a stand in his own congregation and he judges in the midst of the rulers. And he says, you are gods. He was uh, referring to their position of authority and power, that they had the um, almost absolute authority within their realm to um, execute their desires and plans. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. And in 2 Samuel 7, David is described as God's son. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 
So these rulers, if this is an interpretation that these are this, these sons of God are referring to the rulers of the nation of Israel, um, they were like Lamech who married any one of them that they chose. They multiplied their stables of wives, and the practice of polygamy was expanded and established in the antediluvian world. These rulers abandoned their divine mandate to rule righteously and used their position as a means of advantage over those that they ruled. They used their position as being king to take any wife that they wanted. Um, it's interesting, the phrase in, the, in Genesis 6 where it says they married any one of them they chose is really the normal term for marriage. This was not a, a forcible uh, activity. We're not talking about violating these women, the, the daughters of men. They just married them. Um, so they were not forced into these relationships. They were willingly engaged in um, The transgression here, if these are rulers or kings, the transgression here was one of social boundaries, which resulted in polygamy and promiscuity. The problem with interpreting them as rulers and kings is that uh, while there are individual kings that are called God's sons, kings as a group are never called that. So there's a difficulty with understanding it as this way. And this was the prominent Jewish interpretation of this verse uh, after the second century. The third is that these were uh, the descendants of Seth, the godly lineage of uh, of Noah. Uh, they were, yeah, they were prior to the godly lineage lineage of Noah. And this is really sort of the typical conservative evangelical view. I got my uh, one of my systematic theologies down yesterday as I was studying, and uh, they just sort of assumed that that's what it was: the godly line of Seth. They were the sons of God, and the daughters of men were the ungodly women from the line of Cain. That's the uh, sort of common interpretation uh, of today. The violation here would be that they married outside of spiritual compatibility. The scripture tells us not to be unequally yoked. So those men and women here, those girls or young men and women that are thinking about getting married, the scripture says you've got to marry someone who believes in Christ, who trusts in him, right? This did not happen. The godly line of Seth married to the ungodly line of Cain. And uh, there was that spiritual uh, incompatibility. Or, and this is, I love this term. I just learned, it's spiritual exogamy. So, isn't that a cool term, exogamy? The problem, there's a problem with this too. The problem is that nowhere in the Old Testament are the descendants of Seth referred to as the sons of God. This would be a unique um, phraseology concerning the sons of Seth. Uh, it also makes the assumption that all of Seth's line was godly, which fall, flies in the face of what we're going to learn about Noah and his sons as Pastor Eric continues on into this uh, passage. So the three most prominent uh, interpretations throughout church history all have their difficulties. They all have their difficulties. So what are you going to do? You're going to flip a coin and you're going to decide, well, this is what I believe. Well, I'm going to offer one more. And I I want to tell you this from the get-go. This is mine. Uh, It's found nowhere else, which makes me very suspect of it being correct. Uh, But for me, it it fits the data. It fits, uh, I believe, in the in the passage or in the sort of the structure of the book of Genesis. And but I do want you to understand that this is mine. 
and I am not a Hebrew scholar. I mean, I can I can struggle my way through Hebrew, um, but so here's here's what do I have it in that these were just normal men. The sons of God were normal men. We find in verse one, it talks about uh, when men begin to increase in the uh, in number on the earth, and daughters were born to him. So we're just talking what they're normal daughters, right? They're just the normal uh, female. The result of, of reproduction. Nothing special about them, nothing extraordinary, nothing bad about them. It's just a phraseology to say, look, daughters were born to him. And the sons of God, these were just normal guys. Uh, it's a literary device to add uh, variety. One of the things that I was um, amazed with when I got to go to seminary is sort of liter- the literary structure of our scriptures. The, the scriptures are amazing literature outside of being divinely inspired truth. They're amazing literature. The writers of the scripture use a whole host of literary devices. They use different terminology and phraseology. I mean, you would read it and it's not boring because of the way they wrote it. Not just the story, but the way that they wrote it. So the writer here could have said daughters were born and sons were born. But he wants to make, he uses a literary device to refer to just normal guys. Normal guys that were born. And it ties back to the creation account. Who created Adam? From where did Adam come? He was the, the, the creation of the direct um, creation of God. Eve was taken from Adam by a direct creation of God. He's just referring back to Genesis 1. And they married. They married. They, they married any of them that they choose. This is just without regard to social standing. And it's sort of there's a parallel here in this passage where Eve saw that the fruit was was good and it was beautiful and then she took it. In the same way these men saw the women and they they saw that they were beautiful and they took them. And while this was occurring, God declares that um, so, I'll go back on to that one in a second. This is a possible interpretation. There's nothing fantastic. There's nothing bizarre about it. It's just a way for the writer to the book of the book of Genesis to tell us that God's mandate to his people to increase and multiply in the earth was in fact occurring. But like I said, um, it's not found anywhere else. And one of the reasons I'm sort of, le- at this particular juncture I'm leaning towards it, um, he, or the book of Genesis is um, structurally divided by uh, 11, there's 11 sections within the book. And the sections refer back to the word it's called toledot in the Hebrew. And it means this is the account of. And it starts in um, in uh, in two four where it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth. In Genesis five one, this is the account of Adam's line. In Genesis six nine it says and this is the account of Noah and it goes on in, in uh, 10.1, I forget the, uh, the patriarch that's mentioned there. So this section, 6, 1 through 8, actually goes with the section. Of, it starts in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 1. So this is the cu- a culmination of, we, we, we see the lineage of Seth. We see the lineage of Adam. 
And this is just the culmination of it. So from that perspective, I think that it just deals basically with what was going on, not in a fantastic sense, just in a normal sense. Um, This section is tied structurally to the previous chapter where it gives us the account of Adam's lineage and would show that people were being fruitful and multiplying. So take it for what it's worth. Um, Up until studying this one, I was convinced that we were talking about angels. But, so, um, and one of the commentaries that I read says it's absolutely impossible to be dogmatic about any of them. So take take your uh, spirit, uh, empowered uh, conscience and uh, knowledge and and go from there. Um, and then he says, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is nor- mortal. His days will be 120. Basically, the, God is saying that uh, he, he's going to limit the longevity. He's either going to limit the longevity of those that are following uh, after Noah the problem with that is that we find that people live longer than that. Or he's declaring that in 120 years, the flood is going to come. And then he talks about the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. This is Nephilim, the term is only found two times in the entire Old Testament or in the entire scriptures. This is one, the other is in uh, Numbers 13, where the, the spies went into the land of Canaan and they came back and they said, remember 10 of them said, hey, we cannot take the land because the Nephilim were there and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. So the Nephilim were um, at least a physically uh, impressive group of individuals. Um, I believe the King James translates them as fallen ones, I mean as giants. Well, that's sort of a, uh, not a common translation anymore. Most contemporary translations just call them the Nephilim and let you deal with it. But uh, they are not, as we can see, they are not the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. That's clear from the passage where it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And we find them when the nation of Israel goes into Canaan, like in Numbers. This was something that confused me for a long time as a Christian, or as a young Christian. I'm going, well, if the Nephilim were the result of the angelic beings and the daughters of men, how come you find them after the flood? Because the flood wiped everybody out. They were, I believe, they were just... uh, they are described in this passage as heroes of old, men of renown, not superhuman hybrid creatures. We see that they are not the union of angelic and human. They are just merely men that, ref- that were the heroes of that time who may have had a, an impressive uh, physical stature, but they are not um, some sort of superhuman race that continues on past the flood. So we continue on here. The Lord saw how great wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I have grieved that I have made him. 
but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Human society is declared, is described as being totally depraved. In Genesis 3, we see the fall of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 4, we see the fall of the family. In Genesis 6, we see the fall of society. And this passage starts out in 5, the Lord saw. Think where you, can you remember where that phrase is found before in the book of Genesis? It's found in his creation in Genesis 1 where it says six times that the Lord saw what he, was made, what he made and it was good. And he says one time that he saw what he made and it was very good. But what the Lord sees now in his image bearers is great wickedness. Never, ever underestimate or minimize the effects of sin in our lives as individuals or in the lives or in the, uh, in the society in which we live. We have no idea what the time frame is from the time of Adam and Eve's creation to this time. I mean, there's some speculation as far as looking at the generations and calculating it. But we also know that those, those generations, those lineages are incomplete so we have no idea what the time frame is. But just think to yourself, the, the initial eating of the knowledge of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, doing that one thing that God forbade, has resulted now in that wickedness is the predominant attitude and action of those upon the earth. The word means that all humanity... And I believe God is, the the writer here is speaking hyperbolically, but the all humanity was acting with all evil. The whole person was acting contrary to God's design. So may we never underestimate the effect and the power of sin in our life and in society as well. God saw great wickedness. And he also saw that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. There were evil designs. I think I'm one back. There were the evil designs that, um, that the individuals had. This term, uh, inclination of the thoughts of the heart, is found in Genesis 2, 7 and 19, where it talks about God forming man or God forming the animals. Do you think when God began the process, how much planning do you, th- and, I, and I understand we're speaking sort of as men and women would speak, but how much planning, design, purpose, imagination went into that process of God creating? I would imagine there was a tremendous amount that it was not something that God did uh, hurriedly, something that God did flippantly, but there was a process. There was imagination formed into it. It is the same word that's used here of the evil that those of that time conceived in their heart. It's also used of a potter turning a vase on a potter's wheel. There's time and there's thought and there's design and there's energy given to that creation. By the same, in the same way, every thought, every inclination of the heart of those during that time was evil all the time. There's this idea 
of they were thinking about it exclusively. And God's response to that, of looking down upon his image bearers and seeing that they had turned from him and they thought and planned and calculated and designed evil was pain. It says, so the, the Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. There's the grief that's that sorrow and regret that God has. He saw the depths of rebellion his image bearers had sunken to and was grieved. The, the, the root of the word is really to breathe deeply or to sigh. Have you ever had a gut-wrenching emotional experience that was just so powerful and so um, prominent in your life? It was just like every ounce of your being cried out and you were deflated. Has that ever, ever happened to you? This is the picture that is used of God's response to our rebellion. His initial response and reaction is not anger and wrath. It's grief. He grieved over those he created because the depths to which they had sunken. And he also experienced pain, which is a similar word. It refers to the physical and emotional sorrow. It's used in Genesis 34-7 where Diana's brothers, in response to Diana being violated by Shechem, It says they were filled with grief and fury. They were just struck to their heart that their sister had been violated in that way. In the same way, God's response to the rebellion, to the planning, design, and putting into practice of rebellion against him, that those who lived during this time, it grieved his heart. There is no such thing as no-fault sin. Because God, our Heavenly Father, is aware of it. It doesn't matter if it's in the privacy of our own home, when we're alone with closed curtains and under the cover of darkness. Our sin affects our Heavenly Father. Just as it caused grief and pain to God then, it does as well. It affects our Father. It breaks his heart. So God determines a plan to eliminate the infestation of sin by eliminating the carriers. I will wipe mankind out whom I have created from the face of the earth, the men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. This word is also used in 2 Kings where it says, God again is talking about judgment directed towards the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to wipe you like you would wipe a dish and turn it upside down. It was going to be completely empty. The word means to erase by washing. So God does not merely suffer grief and pain because of our wickedness and evil plotting, but moves to correct it. And he has a radical solution. A solution that's going to affect every individual that lived upon the earth at that time. have no idea how many people were there but it is radical. God is going to wipe them out like one would wipe a dish. But in the solution, there is a glimmer of hope where it says in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Grace was given to him and his family. 
In verse 9, which I'm going to let uh, Pastor Eric begin to deal with next week, um, we see that Noah had a good character. He was righteous and walked blamelessly. But grace is never based upon our actions. We never are recipients of grace for what we do. But it is God's determined decision to be favorable towards us. And Noah was received that as well. It's easy for us to sort of sit here in this day and age and, and sort of speculate who the sons of God were and daughters of men and the Nephilim and to think about the wickedness of, uh, of the world at that time. But I want to read a couple of passages as we transition from that into communion. It's found in the book of Romans, the third chapter. And the Apostle Paul is not describing the antediluvian world. He's not describing the world before the flood. He's describing the world in which he lives. He's describing the world in which we live. When he says this, There is no one who who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their mouths, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes." This is the culmination in the book of Romans, the first three chapters, where the Apostle Paul says basically that we are all guilty before a righteous God. And he restates it again in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, where he says, For you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature's objects of wrath. That's a description of us. That's a description of the world in which we live. Before Noah, God's decision was to wipe the slate clean. He corrected the problem by eradication. He corrects our problem in a radically different way. And the different way is this. He sent his son at the right time to come and be our sacrifice. He sent his son, God in the flesh, to live a life of obedience and then to offer himself as our substitute on a cross. Before Noah, God's decision was, his sovereign decision was to eradicate the race, to wipe it out. His decision now is to redeem the race, that we can be born again as the Spirit of God works within us.
that we can be new creatures in Christ. For the Apostle Paul goes on to say, when we were like the rest, we were natures, like the rest, we were by nature's objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. The continuation in the book of Romans in chapter 3 verse 21 But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. Apart from law has been made known, which the law and the prophets testify. Righteousness as a gift from God that the Old Testament declared. As we take communion together, as we remember Christ's sacrifice, the only difference between us and the world prior to Noah is that God has chosen to redeem us. And bring us into relationship with himself. May we remember that 